Thanks for being a loyal listener of Capehart. Every episode, we talk with newsmakers who challenge your ideas. If you want to support the team making these conversations possible and all of the Post's writers and journalists, the best way to do so is by subscribing. Right now, our best subscription deal is back. From now until January 4th, get a year-long subscription for just $9.99. Don't miss out. Take a minute now and go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. Tennis great Arthur Ashe was the first black man to win the Australian Open, the U.S. Open, and Wimbledon. And he's the subject of a fascinating new documentary called Citizen Ash. In it, we watch Ash rise from not rocking the boat during the tumult of the civil rights movement. He was part of this notion that to, to make it in America and not to be a, a become an Emmett Till, you know, or be another person, a black person that's lynched, you had to sort of stay, you know, in your lane to being an ardent civil rights and humanitarian activist until he died of AIDS in 1993. He was all about defending oppressed peoples from all over mm-hmm. the world. So just a couple days after he wins the U.S. Open, he's on Meet the Press, and you know the rest of his social activism is history. Follow that journey with the film's co-directors, Rex Miller and Sam Pollard, in this conversation, first recorded on December 14th, for Washington Post Live. Rex Miller, Sam Pollard, welcome to Capehart. Thank you so much. How are you doing today? Great, and Sam, it's great to see you again. We sat next to each other at the March on Washington Film Festival uh, back in October, so it's great to see you. But I'm going to start with with you, Rex. What inspired, inspired you to make this film, and why is it important to tell Arthur Ashe's story now? Well, uh, I got inspired initially because in 1968, when I was six years old, uh, I was at the match that Arthur won the U.S. Open. And so he's always been an idol of mine. I am the uh, product of two tennis fanatic parents. So I grew up imitating Arthur Ashe and other great players of the day. So uh, the opportunity came up about five years ago, really, because I was handed some beautiful archival material which we can talk about more, but it just seemed like a no-brainer to try to make this film, and it wouldn't have happened without Jeannie Ash, you know, giving us Mm -hmm. a green light to go ahead and tell this story. Okay, Rex, so you were at that match uh, where he won, but I have to to tell you, uh, I played tennis when I was growing up um, because my mother was playing a lot of tennis, and it wasn't until watching this film that I understood that, hmm, maybe one of the reasons my mother started playing tennis was because of Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson. But Arthur Ashe being this huge champion and, you know, this little black kid with thick framed glasses like Arthur Ashe and tennis whites, people have told me all throughout my childhood that I look just like Arthur Ashe. So he's been a figure in my life for a long time. Sam, where did the title um, of the documentary come from, Citizen Ash. What does it mean? Well, I think it says that he's a citizen of the world, Jonathan. And uh, it was a title that uh, when I got involved with the film, they already had. And I think it speaks really eloquently about the fact that here was a man who was phenomenal on the court and, and, and an activist off the court. 
And he just didn't sort of focus on being a tennis star, but he wanted to focus on other issues like apartheid in South Africa, dealing with AIDS after he was diagnosed with AIDS and other humanitarian you know, projects. So that's why we called it Citizen Ash. And, you know, quite honestly, when we were thinking about the title, we couldn't come up with a better one. Credit <laughs> <laughs> to our producer, Stephen Cantor, who came up with that title. And it speaks to, you know, from the very beginning of this production, it was never going to be a tennis film. Sure, we cover tennis, and I'm a tennis guy and wanted to tell that story. But it's his place in the bigger world that, you know, leaves us with inspiration. Mm -hmm. So the title is Citizen Ash. And as Sam said, it's about, you know, his act, he was an activist off the court. But as we see in, as we see in the film, that activism came a little later. And, and Rex, you know, Arthur Ashe had a reputation for being cool and a cool, calm and collected guy uh, on and off the court. In the film, he says that uh, he never had the emotional freedom to behave the way players like John McEnroe did. In fact, um, he goes on to say, my race wouldn't allow me to be like that. And I'm getting way ahead of myself in the film, but it's that comment that speaks to perhaps why Arthur Ashe at the beginning of his career to the frustration of a lot of uh, black power and black liberation activists wouldn't step out front on issues of race. Yeah, it took Arthur a while to get his foothold in the world. He grew up in segregation in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. He experienced the murder of Emmett Till like the rest of the country did, but it impacted Arthur greatly because he was the same age as Emmett Till. So he was taught to keep your head down, don't make waves. But as he went out into the greater world with his tennis, by going to UCLA, by working at West Point as a uh, military member, um, he, he spent time at West Point. Um, he knew he had to say something on race. He knew also that he was going to do it his way. So he bided his time. Um, as Sam likes to say, he had to build up his bona fides. And when he won the U.S. Open and was now basically a world champion, then he felt the time was right. And then he could do it his way with his new platform. I'd like to say this, Jonathan. You know, the thing, too, to remember is that who was one of his major heroes? Jackie Robinson. And if we go back historically, historically look at Jackie Robinson, who, who you know, integrates the major leagues in 1947 at the behest of Branch Rickey. What was his strategy? The strategy that he was given by Branch Rickey was, you're going you're gonna to be the first black ball player in the major leagues, but you can't make waves. You're going to have to take the insults. You're going to have to take, you know, from not only the fans, but from other players, from other teams. You know, you're going to have to be passive. You're going to have to sort of deal with it and not make waves. And Arthur saw that as an example like many African-Americans did in the 50s and 60s, you know. So he was part of this notion that to, to make it in America and not to be a, a become an Emmett Till, you know, or be another person, a black person that's lynched, you had to sort of stay, you know, in your lane, not go outside mm -hmm. your lane. So as you know, Jonathan, when, when Muhammad Ali came out and refused to go into the service, that was a huge thing. I was, I was 14, 15 years old. And to me, it was like, wow, this guy's got a lot of nerve, got a lot of guts. And Arthur had to wait, bide his time, you know. And, you know, in and, and, and reality, he's more the norm than the exception when you think about 
him becoming more active as he be as he found this platform. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, Sam, I was going to bring up the, you know, bring up, you know, athletes like Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, who were very out there because that was new. It was uh, unheard of. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Arthur Ashe was more focused on college and tennis. So how was he viewed by leaders in the civil rights movement? As an Uncle Tom, you know, I mean, you know, he was he was considered the good Negro, you know, the good Negro. And, and, and you and remember what Harry Edwards says, you know, when they reached out to Arthur to sort of say, you know, since you have this, you know, you're in that lily white world of tennis, you can make some you can make some noise. And he didn't want to make noise. Now, what's fascinating about this documentary, because of the audio that Rex was able to find, you hear Arthur struggling with the with the, his feelings about going to UCLA at the same time as young black people are, you know, being attacked and beaten because they're sitting in in places like Birmingham and you know in Nashville back in the early '60s. Arthur felt the pain of that, and he felt a little embarrassed that he was not there on the front lines. And that's the mm-hmm. that's what I find really fascinating about this film. We look at the complexity of this young man struggling and challenging himself to zeal. How do you be a black man in America or a black person in America? You know, uh, Rex, you were going to say something before, and then I have a question for you. Yeah, a- absolutely. He was he was called an Uncle Tom publicly and privately, but also privately he had dialogue with Stokely Carmichael with Jesse Jackson when they called him out to get more involved and, you know, called him an uncle. Um, but he didn't take that sitting down. He would say, oh, I understand what you're doing. I support you, Jesse or Stokely, but that's not my way. I'm going to do it my way. You don't maybe understand the lily white world of tennis that I reside in, but I'm thinking long-term and intentional and pragmatic steps. And that's how he went forward. Uh, so much so that later you had people like Harry Edwards, who called him Uncle Tom initially, respecting him for his method. You know, we all also kind of always looked at Arthur as more of an undercover operative in the in the halls of Wimbledon rather than a revolutionary. You, you just you just stole something I was going to say, Rex, that you said. You said Arthur could go into the stuffiest white country clubs and engage with Republican leaders of business. Some people might call him a sellout. We always looked at him as more of an undercover operative. Arthur Ashe's brother, Johnny Ashe, said that after uh, Arthur Ashe won the U.S. Open, he told him, quote, I'm a champion now. People will listen to what I have to say. Describe the significance of Ashe's winning the U.S. Open in 1968, which was the same year that Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy were assassinated, and Johnny was fighting in Vietnam. Yeah, there was a lot going on. So Arthur had personal relationships with both Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, um, talked about in the film. He was actually with Bobby Kennedy just a few days before he got killed because they were making a campaign stop. Arthur's agent, attorney, and Davis Cup coach, Donald Dell, uh, was in the Kennedy campaign, and he was running the California campaign, basically. So there was a connection there, and Arthur was there uh, just a couple days before Kennedy got killed. So all of these things happened in 1968. The same day that the U.S. Open started were the uh, Democratic National Convention riots in Chicago. 
So this is all the backdrop for Arthur. And now you have the first US Open, meaning it's the first time the pros and amateurs are gonna play together. And Arthur winds up winning the tournament. And as Jeannie like told me several times, it wasn't just that he won the US Open, it was that he was an American winning the US Open. And that meant a lot to Arthur too. He was stationed at West Point. He was an American. Uh, one of his favorite moments was going back to West Point and getting a standing ovation in the dining room. So all of these, you know, combined to let Arthur know that the time was now right, that he knew people were going to ask him questions. They were going to listen to him. And he was now ready to talk about his, you know, theories and, and wants and likes of how the civil rights fight should be fought. Um, and not only here, I might add, he was all about defending oppressed peoples from all over mm -hmm. the world. So just a couple of days after he wins the U.S. Open, he's on Meet the Press. And, you know, the rest of his social activism is history. Right. And Sam, um, in the film, you know, we see the activism um, begin when it comes to apartheid in South Africa and his decision. To, to go to South Africa and play and the significance of that. How big a deal was that, not just to Arthur Ashe, um, but also to tennis and to the civil rights struggle in the state? Well, it was a, it's a huge deal for, for an African-American athlete back in the 1970s to decide to want to go to South Africa, first of all, to play tennis, and then to also challenge you know, the apartheid laws there. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about this is how complicated it is. Because on the one hand, he not only upset the white people, the white South Africans, about coming there and talking about they should be eliminating apartheid, there should be integration on the, in the tennis matches that he was going to play there. But he was also upsetting, you know, not black South Africans and, 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 and African Americans because the attitude back then was a black person be it a sports per figure or an entertainer, should not be going to South Africa, you know. Mm -hmm. And you see that even though he had to challenges in terms of trying to get into South Africa, when he got there, and as we say at this press conference he went, went to, there were black South Africans saying, you should go home. You shouldn't be here. You're just, you're just you know, doing exactly what the white South Africans want you to do, you know, being an Uncle Tom by coming here to play. So. What's fascinating to me about this story about Arthur Ashe is the duality that he confronted constantly, this duality, being a black person in a, in a racist society and how to negotiate that. And it's fascinating also because if you think about it, here is in the 70s, we had just gone through the, the, the high points of the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Dr. King, the March on Washington. And in the 70s, African-Americans, not only Arthur Ashe in the, in the sports arena, but African-Americans in the political arena, like Maynard Jackson, were saying, if we're going to break the barriers, we, we need to be inside. You know, we need to be in the doors of power to make change. You know, Dr. King had pushed us to get into the, into the corridors of power. Now, well, while we're in there, let's see how we can make change. And Arthur was following that template, which I think people need to understand. I basically learned about apartheid through Arthur Ashe going there. I was about like 12 years old when he went. I didn't know anything about that. And then Arthur Ashe going to South Africa. And just to set the timeline, it wasn't until 1985 that you had American college students walking on Washington, protesting apartheid in South Africa. So Arthur was way ahead of the curve. 
And he said there were two big reasons why he went there. He said, first of all, if I'm going to talk about this issue, I have to see for myself what it really is. I'm not going to just talk about things that I read in the newspaper. And then secondly, he said, I want free, I want black South Africans to see a free black man for the first time and see that he could challenge not only on the court, but off the court, which he did. You know, Sam, uh, Arthur Ashe's health took a, a turn in the 80s. Um, he had that heart attack that uh, ended his his playing professional playing career. Uh, in the night, he had the heart attack. He needed a blood transfusion, and then later on, we find find out that he, as a result of a blood transfusion, um, contracted AIDS. Yet his his wife Jeannie said he took this on the the AIDS activism on as quote just another fight. What did you learn about Arthur Ashe's strength? while making this film? I think you come away with understanding that Arthur Ashe had a tremendous level of dignity. You know, he had a, a tremendous level of understanding that it was never letting things overwhelm you, but also trying to always fight the good fight. And it's amazing. I mean, I mean, imagine this man at the height of his career, tennis career, you know, dealing with heart attack after heart attack, dealing with a blood transfusion where he, he contracts AIDS and not succumbing to, to all of these obstacles, but always looking at things in an extremely positive way, you know, which makes him really special. You know, he had this sort of very positive, focused attitude. I mean, that's what comes across to me as we, as we uncover this story and we learn about Arthur. And so mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, a, it's an amazing sort of, for me, it's been an amazing sort of revelation to really learn about Arthur because, you know, Jonathan, I grew up in the 60s. All I knew of Arthur Ashe in the 60s was pretty much the first part of the film. He was a great mm -hmm. guy who was phenomenal on the tennis court, you know. He wore those, you know, glasses like me and you, you know, and uh, <laughs> he could play, you know. And I didn't think much of him as a, pol a political person, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Ali, you know, you know, Harry Edwards, t you know, John Carlson, Tommy Smith. Those are the guys who are standing up and fighting a good fight. But Arthur was too, but he was doing it, as Rex has said many times, in Arthur Ashe's way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, one of the things um, that I, another memory of mine, I was a researcher on the Today Show uh, the day that Arthur Ashe passed away. And every, all of us on the show knew that, that Brian Gumble and Arthur Ashe were really good friends, close friends. And so I was very curious to see how Brian was going to honor his friend. And I was in the office and listening to him break down on air as he read his yeah. friend's obituary, um, it, it still is with me. So it was incredible to hear Brian's voice and hear a snippet from that uh, obit on February 6th, 1993. But Rex, you mentioned this earlier, that you, came, you got all this archival footage. I think you've got 41 rolls of unseen film, 33 audio tapes, 1,000 pages of transcripts. What was the process like going through these archives? Oh, joyful. <laughs> That's, for me, that was almost <laughs> the favorite, my favorite part. I love doing all the research. But uh, the film kind of started with the 41 rolls of film. Uh, Linda Zimmerman uh, contacted me. Her father was John Zimmerman, a very well-known Sports Illustrated and Life magazine photographer. And he spent a week with Arthur in 1968 during and after the U.S. Open. 
following Arthur for what would become a week later, the Life magazine cover. And Life only used two or three additional photos and they had these 41 rolls of film. So Linda, his daughter had reached out to me and that kind of got the ball rolling. I actually said no at first because I had just finished a film on Althea Gibson. But anyway, she kind of wore me down. But in my uh, research at the Schomburg Center, which is where there are 47 boxes of Arthur Ashe, you know, his whole personal archives that wow. Jeannie had donated to the Schomburg, uh, that's where I found this uh, printed version of a transcript of what seemed to be audio tapes. And what was revealed in those transcripts was just fascinating material, but it was just typewritten words on the page. And they were the result of an interview between Arnold Rampersad and Arthur for the book Days of Grace, Arthur's famous autobiography, which was published in the early 90s. So Hannah Shepard, our amazing archival producer, along with Lizzie McGlynn, they reached out to Arnold Rampersad and he said, I have no idea where those tapes are, but I'll go look in my attic, you know, nothing to lose. And a few days later, he called Hannah and said, I just found a shoebox with 33 micro cassettes. Would you like to hear them? And, you know, and then we had another good problem, 33 hours of mm -hmm. Arthur talk. But what those tapes did, I, I feel for the film, is let Arthur basically narrate the film in, in a very interesting style. It wasn't a public interview. You know, he was just a lot of times rambling about all kinds of tangential subjects, you know, Jesse Jackson, Nelson Mandela, Emmett Till, and really revealing some, you know, pretty emotional opinions about mm -hmm. all kinds. So, yeah, then the challenge is shaping that into a, a narrative that's going to do more than just give information. Um, and Sam loves to say, and I'm totally with him on this, we, we're trying to find the emotional resonance rather than just give information. And why? Um, that's why you get Sam Pollard involved. <laughs> right. And I, I was going to say that, you know, the beauty of this film is I kept sitting there thinking, where did they get like there's all this film there's all this footage of him walking on the street looking fly looking fashionable be out there protesting uh, it it gave this it gave your documentary your film this a, a power that i did not expect but also the way this the way the documentary is is put together um where you see him going from um tennis you know tennis champion um, who is practicing what folks call respectability politics to the sweep of him becoming this full-throated activist. And Sam, I'm just wondering, as we're watching this film and we see how long we watch this journey of him becoming an activist, I'm just wondering if you think, uh, do today's athletes, specifically uh, Black athletes, feel athletes feel almost obligated to speak out against injustices? I, I think they have a responsibility. And I think that some of them understand that and they do that now. I mean, we have Colin Kaepernick and we all know what he did, which was courageous, you know, basically, you know, he, he basically killed his career, but he knew what he had to do by taking a knee. I mean, you got LeBron James, who also always speaks out. You got Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, others who just speak out now. And they all, if they don't really quite know the history, they are standing on the shoulders of the Jackie Robinsons and the Arthur Ashes and the Bill Russells and the Jim Browns. 
and the Tommy Smith and the John Carlos's. You know, so I think they understand it. I think the other thing that's interesting, though, and we, we I interviewed Harry Edwards a couple of weeks ago for another project I'm working on. And what's interesting is that these athletes are also living during a time where, particularly in these franchises they belong to, like the NBA or Major League Baseball, where the, these organizations are giving them the ability to speak out without consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to talk much about the NFL, but, but the NBA definitely is giving them room. Now, you know and I know that in the 60s, these, these leagues weren't that open to their athletes speaking out. You know, right. but now they understand that because, you know, in all honesty, it's it's, it's part of it is about understanding that this is a, this is an important time to speak out. Also, it's also about the you know the the, the number of players who play in the NBA are black players, and and they and they have a lot of fans. So the NBA understands that too. So it's also about capitalism. So I'm not going to like mm-hmm. <laughs> disregard that. Also, what's different now, as Harry Edwards pointed out uh, to us, is that athletes now have this mouthpiece called Twitter, you know, or Instagram, where they don't have to go through white-dominated media organizations of the mid to late 60s. They can just hit that button, you know, upload and put their own voice out there word for word and Mm -hmm. be heard, like Sam says, without consequence for the most part. Mm -hmm. You both have mentioned Dr. Harry Edwards many times, and he is a voice in the film from the beginning where I'm listening to him and I'm like, how dare you talk about Arthur Ashe like that? But then in the end, at the very end, he has this powerful quote where he says, to this day, we have not found a person who can speak to both sides of the barricade. And that bridge became so critically and crucially important. Um, real fast, because we just have one minute left. Is Dr. Edwards right? Is there no one who can speak to both sides of the barricades? Rex first, real quickly. Well, you know, obviously there probably are some people who who can. Are they doing it? Not sure. But it just shows how relevant Arthur's message is about starting where you are, use what you have Mm -hmm. and do what you can. You just can't sit by and let nothing happen. And Arthur was great at bringing all these different voices to the table and engaging with dialogue and intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Harry was just saying to those athletes out there who are listening to him, who watch this film, it's time to stand up. You know, stand up, be counted, make your voices heard, you know, which he's done for many, many years. Sam Pollard, Rex Miller, co-directors of the documentary Citizen Ash, thank you very, very much for coming to Cape Thank Art. you, John. Be good. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 